Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us for our special episode, The 21st Recap. We usually plan the show episode by episode, and it just felt right to do something a little bit different to celebrate our 21st recording. We wanted to do something for new listeners and long-term fans alike, so wherever you consider yourself along the line of those two categories, you can either start with the recaps or skip forward to the awards and year in review. The recaps are all new content, and they're more of a reflection back from today's vantage point, so don't worry this isn't a clip show or anything you'll have heard before. Hopefully this will guide you to some episodes you may have missed, or had not yet got around to listening to. Ultimately, the 21st Rewrite is your show, and you should get some useful insights out of every episode. We've tried to select screenplays which provide a lot of value and teaching. Now, if I've got this right, you can skip ahead to roughly the 1 hour and 20 minute mark to get straight to the awards section and avoid the episode recaps if you prefer. So, thank you again for joining us. We're looking forward to the next 20 screenplays. Hello, and welcome to The 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. And today happens to be our 21st podcast. And for today's episode, we are actually going to be recapping all the screenplays that we've reviewed in the past year. And we are going to just talk a little bit about what stood out to us from every single one of them. We won't spend too much in every single one because we did review 20 scripts. Uh, And we would like to thank you for listening and going on this journey with us as we've explored, you know, all kinds of different screenplays, different screenwriters, different genres, and exploring different ways of writing a story. I think as writers, me and Will have, have learned a lot just by reading some of the best screenplays out there. And we will be sharing our picks for what we think are the best original screenplay, best adapted, along with other categories that we think might be really fun to talk about. So the intention of this episode is to give a quick summary of, without any spoilers, of everything that we've actually reviewed over the last year. So you might find that there's an episode you're interested in that you hadn't really considered and that will help you go off and watch the film, find the screenplay and read that. So we really just hope this episode is also an entry point for people, maybe a first-time listener as well. This should be an accessible, spoiler-free episode for all. Yes, I'll I'll try to keep that in mind. Thank you for reminding me of that. So the first screenplay that we did was Steve Jobs, written by Aaron Sorkin. And it was definitely a a very daunting challenge because it's based on a 600-page biography of Steve Jobs. So we actually started out our podcast with probably the most challenging of all. At the time, we didn't realize just how daunting it would be to read a 600-page book and a 190-page screenplay. And I had never seen it. Mm -hmm. And you gave me your word that this was going to be a great film and that I should trust you. Yes, very much so. Yes, I, I, I saw this when it came out in theaters and I had read the book. I was blown away by the, the film because it was so unexpected, the way it was structured, the way that it didn't feel like a biopic. It, it just felt very original, the way that he was able to just extract the major points from a very fat book into a literal three-act film all set in one location for each act, the same characters, three different time periods, and it's all about 
right before a launch. So it, it just felt like a play. It was able to convey Steve Jobs' life into this very entertaining film, but also with a heart as well. Aaron Sorkin is known for his dialogue. And this was 190 pages long or something like that. And, you know, the film is only two hours. 190 pages, that's equals usually to a three-hour film. But that's how much they're talking. But they talk so fast. And the thing that I that really stands out about the film and about Aaron Sorkin, about the screenplay, is that he he writes like a musician. You take out a comma, you take out a word, and it throws off the tempo it takes off you know the the energy like he's so precise in in the way he writes it's like music essentially so i think you know it was a great screenplay to start off this whole podcast journey for me it was very thrilling as well most of my writing focuses on adaptation and history so it was very interesting to see how a writer like Aaron Sorkin would approach the adaptation of a biography. His way of working with it was so original, and it was very influenced by, I want to say, a Shakespearean approach to history, which yes, is to... definitely felt that way. ...to set it all on the stage and try and tell something about the truth by just giving us the essence of, of what made up those moments, as mm. opposed to trying to recreate them factually. It was entirely based on the dynamics between characters. It had this very powerful way of working, which is hard to usually do. I think of films like Goodfellas as being great examples of this, of showing different Raging Bull as well. Uh, characters at different stages in their lives, but that's usually really hard to convey on screen, such a significant yeah. passing of time and, and splitting it into these three separate sections set over the course of 15 years mm. really worked it was also very powerful to read that biography it really ties in with the famous phrase of never meet your heroes mm. uh, you get to learn so much about the darker side of steve jobs about his flaws the mistakes he yeah. made as well as his innovations as well as the the joy he brought to a lot of people a central question that came out of that screenplay and which uh, Aaron Sorkin identified so brilliantly was there's more to life than what you make. And mm. I think that was always a big question mark that you that you find at the end of, mm. of the biography as well, is how much of his life had he put into his career and how much has, had he put into his family and community and and even his own personal faith and and things mm. like that. It was a great way to start this podcast. I think was with with that particular piece. Yeah, and I, and I would encourage whoever wants to read that book. It's a it's a great book. It's it's a very unbiased uh, look at his life, like you were mentioning. Shows all shades, just like the film. So our second podcast was on Roma. Alfonso Cuarón's Netflix released black and white Spanish language film which was entirely based on his own memories and experiences of growing up in the 1970s in Mexico City and focuses on a maid who works in a middle-class household. And the maid's name is Cleo. She's from Oaxaca. Not necessarily as part of the podcast, but we did go on a trip to Oaxaca ourselves yes. uh, last year as well. So that, that did influence two of our episodes, Roma being one of them. And... It was another great read. The screenplay itself felt like a novel. It felt like a memoir all the way through. 
completely infused with memory and a sense of trying to recreate moments and spaces that had existed once and were now gone and reflecting back on on that one of the things that was so interesting about the screenplay just trying to encourage you to also read screenplays as well as just watching the films is that throughout uh roma alfonso cuadron leaves dates in red written in red throughout the, the script telling you when certain events are taking place and it gives a whole new sense to the the work because the screenplay is written literally in color even on the first page there's mentions of different colors in the environment and then it was filmed in black and white so you you get another perspective even though the film is a very artistic work of visual cinema in in itself the screenplay was almost written with readers in mind it, it was certainly written with mm. actors in mind i think right uh, what really stood out to me from that story is how intimate that character felt by the end it's not your typical film where something super dramatic happens i mean there are key moments of her life especially towards the end things do start to unravel it's a bit of a slow burn but every every frame is like a painting every every action has a nuance and everything is very very specifically articulated in the script so it it, it was all planned out all these very small moments that you might think oh an actor improvised or this not it was all there it was all in the blueprint he knew exactly what the audience needed to feel in that moment and that is a stroke of genius it's like you know you're in full command of the emotional journey of the audience you know the small things speak volumes these small moments between her and sofia their relationship her relationship with with the kids and mexico in general what i think that was another thing that was so brilliant about it is that it was a time capsule for the time in mexico there's all these sort of events that happened during that time but we never see the exactly what happened we just sort of see it through the eyes of the, our main characters we're never pulled away from their story to go check out what happened it's just how it personally affected the characters and through them we're experiencing what happened outside and i thought that was brilliant as well and because this film was actually nominated for an academy award for best original screenplay mm. it's actually available in english and in spanish we read the spanish version but if you are interested you can yeah. find an english language version of roma as yes. well great script so our next script is slumdog millionaire uh written by simon bofoy and it is based on a book q and a yes a book by an indian author named right. vikas swarup Right. and it's it's a collection of short stories mm -hmm. and i think our episode on that was really good because i had read the book and you had read the screenplay right and it, we kind of had more of a back and forth on that mm -hmm. where you were asking me questions about yes. the book and i was revealing to you just how different the original story yeah was. i remember being surprised how much it, it morphed into something completely new the energy that the film has i remember it it could be felt in the script as well but i i don't to be honest with you i don't remember how different the film was from the script i think it was fairly on point i think there might have been some differences but it there, it, were, there was one major difference i remember okay and i don't think this really counts as a spoiler because i imagine most people know that slumdog millionaire is set on a show of who wants to be a millionaire in right. india and a boy from the slums 
has made his way on to be a contestant. The producers love this idea because it's kind of ridiculing him. They assume he won't answer any of the questions. Mm -hmm. When he's starting to succeed in the script, the host of the show starts to turn quite dark and, (laughs) and kind of turns on him. And a lot of that is kind of dialed back in the film. Okay. But I think our episode focused much more on the differences between the book right. and that adaptation into the, the story that became Slumdog Millionaire. And now that I'm really recalling our conversation, I remember thinking that Simon did a good job at, at changing things into a more visual platform, at least narratively in a film. I think the changes were all for the better. I remember whenever you were telling me some parts of the book, I couldn't even imagine that being part of the film. Like It just didn't feel like the f- same story even. Yeah, the book itself really focused on the underworld of Mumbai mm-hmm. and New Delhi and definitely showed a lot of the darker side of uh, of what is actually a very terrible social reality for, for many young children. Yeah, and I remember talking about just sort of its unashamed positivity, the, the spirit of the film. It's very bold in, in, in its energy and it, it doesn't, I mean, it, it does explore some dark things. But it never feels too dark. There's always this sort of optimism that you feel in the film. The movie doesn't linger there. Its oh. conviction is in its positivity. And it's a it's a very uplifting film. And honestly, it's one of my favorite films. I think whenever I'm going through some stuff or, you know, I need a bit of a pick-me-up, I think it's a perfect film to watch. And I, I feel better about life. It's just a very, it's a celebration of the underdog. It's a celebration of triumph over your circumstances and i think it was a great great film episode four was coco uh Mm. so that was the first time we were reading a screenplay for an animated film Mm -hmm. i think we balanced that between two big elements one was trying to give a perspective on mexican culture so we we talked about your experiences and your family uh, we talked right. about the stuff that I had been studying in in my studies of Mexico mm-hmm. as well. And we talked about our own trip to Oaxaca, um, mm-hmm. in which we got to witness firsthand a lot of the cultural traditions and, and people that inspired the film. Uh, we know that Pixar spent a lot of time yeah. on location learning about these things so they could bring it into the film. And... The second big element of that was looking at how a story can be written by committee, in a way, by the fact that it is an animation we talked about, how Pixar takes an approach to telling stories. And it's not something that just gets written and then it's filmed, but there's a lot more storyboarding going on. It's a a long process, too. I think it was six years, the the process to get there, writing the story, changing the story, uh, doing the animation. And one thing that... um, for anyone who's going to pick up the script, the script is literally the film because I think they just had to write it and for it to be considered for the Academy Awards. It's the culmination of just sessions after sessions of storytelling of four writers in a room. It's almost like a TV show. You're, you have a, a committee of writers and they're all just sort of brainstorming, like, where do we take the story from here? And then once they bring the actors to do the voice acting, then they get more ideas and they have the luxury to change whatever they want because it's an animated film. Like, that is the ultimate control. That's something that live action films don't have. 
because you know there's other factors that go into it that might change it so it's very interesting in a way now that i think about it it's the most pure sort of or more controlled form of storytelling what you see on the screen is exactly what they meant for you to see and i mean this story is just amazing it's a, a beautiful story i i the themes the the characters the the spiritual journey that the character goes through i think it's just a very epic epic film especially for a kids movie i think the the sort of subject that they explore is um it's very deep and i think it's a very emotional one as well it's a film that i think when i first saw it i wasn't ready to be moved by that being mexican and being from that culture i could you know relate to a lot of it as well and it was also new for me too because i i think i talked about this in the podcast episode is that i didn't grow up celebrating dia de los muertos so having gone to oaxaca with with you and and then watching the film was also like exploring a part of my culture that i was not fully aware of either yeah and one of the other things i think we did quite well reflecting back on our episode is we we looked into the mythology and how that affects storytelling. Right. So I think Pixar was very, very careful with how they wanted to portray Mexican culture. They did a great job. I mean, they did their homework and, you know, that's a very, I mean, they didn't really have to do that. You know, I'm sure they could have gone the other route of just using it for a more, as a means to an end to tell the story, but they did such a good job of trying to capture it authentically. Our next script is Manchester by the Sea, uh, written by Kenneth Lonergan. And this is what I would call an almost perfectly structured script. I mean, it's just a very, I don't know, I was, I was blown away by the level of detail because it's so subtle. It's a very subtle script. It's very unique in a way because it's not really a hero's journey script. And, mm -hmm. and if you're someone who's very familiar with the internal terminologies of screenwriting, let's say. The hero's journey refers to the Joseph Campbell-defined story structure, which mm -hmm. became popularized by Christopher Vogler in his book, The Writer's Journey, which was basically a distilling of how stories have been told in the past. The Lion King would be a perfect example of what a hero's journey mm -hmm. screenplay is. And um, Manchester by the Sea was a screenplay that was on the blacklist. It originally was written by Kenneth Lonergan, mm. and he did get to direct it himself, which I think is a wonderful thing when we're looking at screenplays, is comparing that difference between those that are directed by the writer and those mm. that are adapted, and you see directors putting their own spin on things. Right. This was very much his vision, mm -hmm. and his vision was bleak. He wanted to tell a story that was about someone who was struggling with a problem that he might not ever overcome. Yeah, and watching it the second, because I had seen it before, and watching it a second time, I I realized how funny it was. And, and reading the script too, those moments are in there. I think that was one of the things that kind of escaped me the first time because I was just so focused on just like the heaviness of it. I mean, it's like, it's not a light story whatsoever. And I think it's uh, worth watching a couple times because there's definitely a couple of moments there that you might miss the first time. And it's, I think it's just a, a very detailed portrayal of a man who is so angry but doesn't show it. Like it feels like a very real portrayal of a person 
it's a very sophisticated portrayal of a character because there's all these nuances and there's all these sort of details that are in certain little actions and little outbursts here and there that tell you so much about the character. Again, it's a, it's another case of um, the little things speaking in volumes, kind of like Roma, these little actions that the characters do. It just sort of brings everything to life in, in a very profound way. There was a patience there with telling the story. Yeah, and it's structured in such a way that you have to get to the middle to understand the beginning. And it's, right. it's very neatly divided into two halves. Mm-hmm. And the intention is to give you one portrait of the character up until the middle point. Yep. Then you, without giving any spoilers away, more is revealed about his past. And you get to consider the second half of the film in light of knowing his his real history. And yeah. I think that is something that was a very ambitious way of taking on a story. And it, it very clearly shows how, how careful planning and placing certain events at certain points in the timeline of your 120 pages can yeah. be so powerful. It is hard to keep the reader or the audience on board. I will admit that when we look uh, later on at best opening pages uh, i think manchester by the sea might be one you'd pass up on very quickly because you're just looking at this guy who's working as a janitor in boston and you don't see what the hook is straight away Mm -hmm. but it's one that if you have the patience it will give you the reward yeah and it's uh i guess what i was also trying to articulate earlier is that it just feels very tangible it feels like a very tangible character and story and i think that's that's really great writing for our sixth episode i think we had something very very special which was to review not only the beautiful screenplay adaptation but also the original novel written by shusaku endo silence directed by martin scorsese and screenplay written by martin scorsese and jay cox It was a wonderful, profound, thought-provoking book. It was so interesting to read such a unique voice as well. Um, Shusaku Endo is a Japanese Catholic, and Mm. that was something that was very interesting because it it seemed to bridge this gap for us as, as Western readers into... The history of Japan. It, it focuses on the Christian communities around Nagasaki in the 1600s and the arrival of the Portuguese missionaries who are bringing Catholicism and then their suppression by the Japanese state. I think it's one of the most misunderstood films of the 21st century so far. It's the most little seen, which is, yes. which is kind of a bit of a puzzle for and, me. And it's also amazing to read a screenplay that took about 20 years to write. Mm. And that is because Martin Scorsese and Jay Cox had wanted to take so much care with the source material they were using that they genuinely weren't happy with anything they wrote until it was a perfect adaptation. Which was interesting because the adaptation was essentially the book come to life almost page by page, which is so rare. You know, usually adaptations, they take so many liberties and take so much stuff out, but there's very little that's taken out. And essentially the story is there. Uh, Maybe some scenes are taken out here and there, but you have a very accurate 
adaptation for for the book. But that's one of the hardest things to do with adaptation is to distill things to the yeah. core and keep them intact. And for me, for a long time, Silence was my favorite episode that we've recorded overall. I have a couple more contenders now that we've we've done a few more episodes. But mm -hmm. for the longest time, I thought, how were we ever going to beat that one? Because I think Silence, as Martin Scorsese had explained when he was premiering the film as well, he wanted it to be a film which left audiences talking. Yeah, And I felt our discussion of the work, of, of the book, of the story we'd encountered in these different formats, screenplay film and book, uh, it it just had us talking about all kinds of different things yes. in relation to, in relation to those ideas of faith and what that was putting forward. That's exactly it. Yeah, it it, it starts a conversation. I don't think you can watch this with your friends or whoever you watch it with and 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 leave the theater just in silence. No pun intended. Yeah, I, I watched it with my brother, and I, and I talked about this at length in the in the episode. Is you know we talked for hours after, just like me and you did in the. I think it was probably the longest episode in terms of you know before we edited. Like we talked for a really long time just because it just starts up a conversation about what you said, you know, faith and spirituality and and all these different things. It's just what he did with the script was ask more questions than have answers and i think it was just a very beautifully crafted screenplay and it was a very beautifully crafted film in terms of just the direction that martin scorsese took it in like visually and everything about the film was very beautiful it was it was a great great script and the next episode is a film that has yet to be made or it's in production i think now yeah uh, theoretically it's in production theoretically in production and it was a blacklist script and yes it was a winner right. in 2017 we haven't got around to doing 2018's winner and i think for good reason because i think that project is ultimately very much dead but ruin oh. i think was definitely worth our while yeah ruin is a it was written by matthew and ryan furpo and i i loved 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 the script i remember getting to that last page and just thinking I'm so scared to watch the film now because it's just, this is so great. And I just don't want, you know, the journey that, that I went on reading the script was so visual, so vivid, so visceral and, and, and the, what the character goes through. And I think what I remember feeling is like, it was like the best ending to any script or any film that I've ever seen or read. And I just really wanted to. Um, okay, that's setting some high expectations. I'm sorry, for, I just for readers. Well, that's just my, that's just my opinion. We, um, we were really careful on our episode to not reveal anything past the midpoint. Uh, hmm. Being very conscious of yes, that script is kind of floating around on the internet, but hmm. we we don't want to reveal what the ending's going to be in advance of people getting a chance to see the film. Right. However. Could you give a quick summary of the setting, what, what people can expect from Rowan? So the story follows the character of the captain. He has no name. And we follow him in post-World War II in Germany. And he is on this sort of revenge journey to kill those in his unit. So he was an, a Nazi. And um, along the way, he encounters a, saves a woman 
a Jewish woman, and they pretty much team up to go kill the same person. They have the same target, and so I mean, just that in itself was a very was a very intriguing hook. You have, uh, a, a, you know, a Nazi and a Jew kind of working together, and the film is pretty much a western. Like it has this sort of western. Uh, it's a Western genre. It's essentially a Western. Yeah. but in- it, it creates this lawless 1945 in Germany when no one's really in control anymore. Right. That, that's their Wild West. It's it's the sense that no one's in control. So yes. the guy with the gun wins. And that's something that I, you know, it's never been portrayed, or at least I haven't seen it be explored in other films. I think that's something that was very intriguing and very interesting while reading it. And the characters are just so so complex there is no good and bad i mean these are very broken characters and the way they interact with each other the way they interact with others like it's just such a dark story and a very complicated story in terms of their humanity and where they stand and where their morals stand they're in a place that's almost post good and bad because everything the worst possible things that could happen have happened Mm -hmm. so it's it's this continuation in the face of that knowledge i also think some of the the highlights of our discussion included some of our talks about how those historical topics need to be handled in the 21st century as the older generation is is dying out so we had a a long talk about that as well i think about Mm. what is appropriate use of of these topics and Mm what we do in in the 21st century kind of our responsibilities towards history i think that was some of the the stuff that really made that episode stand out as well yeah we did talk a little bit about that our eighth episode was the lost city of zed which was written and directed by james gray and adapted from a book the story of the lost city of zed concerns a british explorer named percy Fawcett who in the 1920s was exploring the Amazon and became convinced that he had found evidence of a lost civilization that had once lived within the Amazon rainforest. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was quite quite a brave film to be releasing and something we're seeing a lot in our 21st century films now is this, these re-evaluations of, of certain historical... Uh, dynamics, especially the idea of colonialism, hmm. and uh, this explorer who was brought up at the the height of the British Empire, and kind of the values he embodied, and also the way he resisted some of those expectations that were coming from society. He was very willing to believe that advanced civilizations could be created by what at the time were considered inferior races by some of the people at the Royal Geographical Society. And that was kind of one of the the strong debates he was getting himself into with with his peers was just Mm. this sense of actual equal human potential around the entire world uh, as opposed to a a Eurocentric belief. And then also his relationship with his wife was very forward-thinking as well. Yeah. And that came up in the story. His wife was definitely a character that was much stronger that was normally seen in those times. I think that was very forward thinking. And his relationship with his son, too, was something that really intrigued me reading the script. I think also 
what I remember thinking was that the film, just from a visual standpoint, I felt didn't quite come off the page as, as when I read the script. I feel like the the sort of approach was a little I wouldn't say flat, but I just I just felt like there was a bit of an energy that was missing that was there in the script. No, I can see that. I think it was a very difficult project. In mm -hmm. particular, I, the book itself, with adaptations, I often find this is the case, that it seems to be more convenient to buy the rights to a book than to claim to be, even though you're adapting historical events, in order to prove that that is entirely your own research and then you created the screenplay is quite difficult. So yeah. I I think that in, in some cases, adaptations of books aren't necessarily intended to be adaptations of books. They're more about rights. And I feel that this one in particular, because the actual book of The Lost City of Zed is, half of it is about going to the Amazon, following in Fawcett's footsteps, and reporting in a journalistic fashion about what has changed and what the Amazon is like nowadays and mm -hmm. kind of really putting into perspective what it's like to go in the early 2000s as opposed to going in the 1920s and everything that has has changed in that sense. Right. I remember vividly one part of the book where he describes going into a camping store in New York City and just saying how unbelievable all of this stuff would have been to men of Percy Fawcett's generation in the 1920s, buying water purifiers and mosquito nets right. and repellents and all these tents and everything and camping gear that is just designed to to weigh almost nothing. And it, it he yeah. just paints this completely different world, um, whereas the, the film is focused entirely on Fawcett's life mm -hmm. and just considering who he was as a person, which in itself is a fascinating film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely thought the the exploration of the Amazon in itself is always a very interesting subject and something really interesting to watch. So our next script is Sideways, written by Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor. And what a joy this script was and what a joy this film was. It was such a smart, witty, and very intriguing um, character study. Miles is... Hence, not one of my favorite characters of all time. I think, you know, he feels like a very tangible and realistic character. And it's a story that isn't quite explored a lot in mainstream Hollywood. You know, there's this sort of middle-aged man who's going through his crisis and he's overweight and he drinks a lot. And, you know, he's not necessarily the most moral person. Oh, I won't give away anything, but... Uh, but you're with him the entire time. You understand who this character is. You, you, he, he feels very real. And the way that Alexander Payne directed Paul Giamatti and developed this character, he feels like a well-rounded character filled with different layers. And maybe because I'm a writer myself and you're a writer too, we could understand his pain as well because mm -hmm. uh, it's more specific. But I just feel like the dialogue was really great. It's the interesting because the book it's based on as well mm -hmm. was a a novel written by a screenwriter, Rex Pickett, who yeah. was kind of writing that book in frustration, it seems. Uh, and, you know, it, it got adapted into what turned out to be one of the most successful independent films of the 2000s. 
yeah, the book itself was kind of the heart and soul and told us so much about Miles and, and his friends and his, his love interests and everything like that. And yeah, it, it offered a new perspective into right. the character, but we could also see that came through in Paul Giamatti's performance. Yeah, and obviously you get more from the book, but I, I feel like the the script was a fairly um, accurate adaptation. I don't think they stared away too much from the book, but I think the spirit of the characters is the same. You have four very distinct characters, and it's very clear what their motivation is, what their perspective is, and it's just really, really funny. It was a very witty script, and uh yeah no i I thoroughly enjoy that film yeah it's about miles who is a struggling and failed writer and his best friend jack is about to get married miles is divorced and so they're polar opposites and a lot of the the odd couple yeah a lot Mm -hmm. of the fun in that screenplay comes from having these Mm -hmm. two polar opposite characters trying to pull each other in the exact opposite directions that they want to go in um and ultimately it's a tale of love and of of new beginnings and of really accepting oneself, which I think is a, there, there is some, some great feel good moments in sideways. It always has the right balance of comedy and drama and it never feels like it's swinging on one side to the other, which is just great. If you want to write something like that, that's equally comedic and equally dramatic. This is the perfect script for you to, to read. Because it, it just does it in a very, very effective way. So episode number 10 was Ex Machina by Alex Garland, British screenwriter. Interesting. Why did you add the British in there? It's, it's very important. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, I had never heard of Alex Garland. I, mm. I was aware of his work. I, I think it's mm. almost impossible not to be at this point. Right. Um, but I wasn't really aware of him as a screenwriter, and I was actually listening to an interview with the scientist Brian Cox, who mentioned that he really admired Alex Garland's films mm. um, because of their strong scientific basis. So it, it's science fiction, but he's he takes both of those words very seriously when he considers the the terminology science fiction. I think he he puts a lot of weight onto ideas, concepts, themes that arise from considering questions that cannot easily be answered Mm -hmm. in a futuristic manner, um, considering technology, things like that. And then on the other side, he considers the fiction really well. He writes really clear characters. He doesn't overload his scripts with too many characters, so it never distracts Ex Machina, I think, was an absolute masterclass in how to write a screenplay. I felt that the concept of Chekhov's gun, which, if you're not familiar with that, it it means if there's a gun placed on the table in the first act, someone needs to have shot it by act three. That was some advice from the Russian playwright Chekhov. Essentially, don't that put, is interesting. Don't put props in your in your plays unless they are useful, unless they affect the plot. And I think that uh, Alex Garland completely understands that concept. I think the entire first 10, 15 pages are just full of world-building concepts that actually come back and affect the outcome of the ending by the final page. And that is just 
it's just wonderful to read through it and actually see how it's built and yeah. how he gives so much weight to discussing the ideas. The, the, the film is about artificial intelligence as well. Is there going to be a point where artificial intelligence can completely convince us? But he also manages to make that into a powerful thriller, a powerful drama at the same time. Yeah, and, and by exploring that concept of artificial intelligence and how far that's evolved, at least in the, in this story in particular, is breaking down what makes us human and exploring that idea. And as we will get to another script written by him uh, later on in, in this podcast that we did review, uh, there's a similar theme in that film as well, which is the simple question of what is it to be human? What is humanity? And, and what is the difference between human and a robot, between artificial intelligence and actually having a soul? Like what makes us, you know, what that is a, a theme that he explores in the film. But it's never in a boring, abstract way. You Like you said, it's a, you know, it's a thriller and there's suspense and there's definitely a plot going forward and interesting characters. So it's all that wrapped up in a really great story. But the themes are always there and it's always done in a very subtle and profound way. And it's done through action. It's not done through two characters just talking about it, even though they do, but they're stakes. And it's because of the setting that they're in that it just kind of encapsulates all of that into, a, I agree, a really well-crafted screenplay. And for anyone, I think is a must to read. So the next script is actually a stage play. And it's written by Benjamin Falk. It's called uh, Particular Disposition. And it was the winner at the 2018 Austin Film Festival, where it won... Best Play. Best Play. I mean, we had the the opportunity to actually interview Benjamin on that podcast. So this is one of the few times that we've had another guest in our episodes. And it's just it was just a fascinating episode for me to get to talk to someone who wrote something that I felt was just you know it was just also very masterfully done it's a play and it's set in the 1800s and it's actually based on a true story yeah particular disposition is set during the early 19th century when there's an interesting legal concept to play here homosexuality itself isn't illegal the crime of sodomy was, That's what it was. was what was illegal. However, what what is basically being outlawed is two men being in love. Mm-hmm. And this obviously is a difficult but timely topic. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think Benjamin explored really well in terms of making this kind of ancient concept very intelligible for a modern audience. And really was focused on getting into the minds of the characters. I think this is an absolute must listen. It again, it it's a different kind of episode in that you won't have read this, but you can pick up on what the story is about through listening to the conversation because I think we cover very clearly all of the concepts, the characters, the setting. And you also get to hear from a writer who has been there and been awarded one of the the best uh, writing honors in in these competitions in right. the United States. Yeah, and and just the story of uh, I think these were the so the story is about these two men that were hanged, and I believe it was the last two 
Yeah, they were, were the last two to be hanged. For that, and specifically sodomy. Yeah. And and it was just the way that he crafted the, the story was that you were constantly going back and forth mm-hmm. through time. And, and they're not the main characters, so there is a third character in that who, right. is, who is real, but it it's more focused on him and, and living with the knowledge of, of what happened to his yes. his companions. I mean, the themes that he explores of shame and uh, just sort of like this sexual repression mm-hmm. and the relationship between uh, these two guys. I mean, it was just... And human individuality against the state is right. a powerful concept there, or just society as opposed to the state. It was, yeah, no, I was just very impressed by how seamless the story moved, even though structurally it's all over the place. It, it it feels right, like there's a certain flow because you're on the character's emotional journey. And sometimes the emotional journey takes place before and after. And just the way it, it was all put together, I just really enjoyed getting insight into how he, how he got there because he took about six years or something like that, seven years to, to complete a script. So it's a great, it's great insight for anyone who's writing a script and kind of see what someone who successfully gone through all of that and what advice he gives and sort of to see the process of how he got to that place where the story was working what he had to do in order to get to those points how he constantly keeps himself inspired i think it's uh it was really great and we were very lucky to have him on our on our episode for episodes 12 13 and 14 we looked at the works of damien chazelle as a trilogy almost uh, and a three a series of three episodes for our podcast. So we started with episode 12, Whiplash, which is a very interesting screenplay to read. I think it's very instructive Mm. to new screenwriters. You're looking at something that was written by a young and upcoming director who at the time wasn't very well known, wasn't able to get his his dream project off the ground. Mm. And he wrote Whiplash almost in frustration about the fact that he couldn't produce La La Land. Right. It's almost a polar opposite of La La Land. This is a much more bleak story about challenge, about adversity, and it really embodies those two things in its two central characters, which are Andrew, played by Miles Teller, and Fletcher, who's played by J.K. Simmons. Fantastic performances, but also working with very, very strong material from this screenplay that boxes in these two characters and forces them to fight against each other until one of them emerges the victor. And I I think it's a really great screenplay. The one thing that I took away from it was to consider what that is like to try and get a story down to just two characters, to see if that's possible. Sometimes minimalism is harder than than something that's got a lot more uh, in terms of different elements that can be played around with. Most of this is set entirely in one school with two characters and a couple of peripheral characters. And ultimately, it it tells this really engaging, really powerful story that has gone down as as a classic. Yeah, and, and you're right. That was one of the most intriguing parts was that it was just two characters and the dynamic, the the back and forth, the chess game that they're playing, the the mind games, the psychological abuse. The, I mean, it was just like it's it's a thriller, kind of um, disguised as this sort of 
drama about this one particular character wanting to be the very best and this opposing force who's trying to break him down. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating how, how simple it is, how every scene says so much and it's just like a chess move. It's just one more mind game and back and forth. And Damien Chazelle obviously loves jazz. And I think this is such a, a great love letter to that just as much as La La Land is. I think this is as well, but it's the dark side of it that the, the pain, the, the effort, the, all the, all the struggle that goes into perfecting your craft and how, how far one's willing to go to, to get there. And I think La La Land's uh, in the same vein as like the other side of the coin. It's like the, the joy of it, the, the enthusiasm, the positivity. So it, I think it's, um, I think it was perfect that he followed that with La La Land. Yeah, one of the things we got to do for both of these was to read different versions of the screenplays. So when we've been focusing on adaptations, we've tended to look at the book and then at the final product. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Whiplash and La La Land, we were very lucky in that older versions of both of these screenplays exist mm -hmm. and could be compared against each other. So a big part of our episodes was comparing the old version of Whiplash against the final shooting script. And then the same thing, looking mm. back at that original conception of La La Land. Mm. And then, especially as more time passed between those two versions, seeing how, how the eventual film turned out, which obviously I was very biased because it is one of my absolute favorite films, but the final film with Ryan Gosling and, and Emma Stone. Yeah. It was interesting to read a musical, first of all, because I've never read a musical before. So I remember that was my big sort of takeaway from that, too, is how do you write the songs in there? Because obviously every song moves the story forward, too, and sometimes moves the story forward very, very fast because you can get away with a lot during a musical number. And you the know. answer, funnily enough, turned out to be there's two ways to write a musical because in the old, the spec script version of it, Mm. he describes what each song is meant to represent. And in the shooting script version, all of the songs have been written, so he gets right. to, to include it and say, this is the song that's going to play at this point. Yeah. But looking back at that spec script, seeing how a writer describes within a couple of lines what a song is meant to be, and then it's it's that level of trust that I think is very important in screenwriting is to understand that the writer is not in control of everything. You're not a novelist. You are you are laying out the blueprint of what the film will be. Mm -hmm. And you need to trust uh, a lot of things I see from, from uh, more amateur screenwriting that I read as well is so much description of the, the setting and what and the clothes that the characters are wearing. And that's not necessarily your role when you can trust the costume designer and the set designer mm -hmm. and it was interesting to see that in the musical because Damien Chazelle has been working with um with Justin Hurwitz for so long they obviously trust each other yeah and there's this sense that within La La Land there is a strong trust that Justin Hurwitz is going to turn this into something phenomenal and I think we saw with uh the reception of of La La Land at the Oscars in which um Justin Hurwitz himself was was awarded an Oscar. Um, yeah. Just just how valuable 
that that level of trust is in in your colleagues yeah i mean they've obviously i think they've known each other since college and they have a very intimate collaboration and what is now three films it's just about intention i think you know when writing a script you got to have intention like what does each scene represent what does it mean it's like when you're writing uh, i don't know i'm not a musician but i can imagine like it's a symphony so like every note moves it in a certain direction so every scene is a note every scene is moving it in a direction for the emotional journey of an audience and and Damien Chazelle understands that so yeah so every he had intention for every song and trusting that Justin Hurwitz was going to take care of that episode 14 was first man which was the latest film by Damien Chazelle at mm-hmm. time of recording uh, but the screenplay is not his. It's by Josh Singer. And mm-hmm. based on the book, First Man, The Life of Neil A. Armstrong by James R. Hansen. And I think the title of the book gives it away. It's based on the life of Neil Armstrong. Mm-hmm. It's a very thoughtful adaptation, I think. It, as a screenplay, it's a very interesting piece. I think it it's highly informed by a lot of the actual technical aspects of Neil's job, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that the book really focused on. The book itself wasn't really for me. I think it will appeal highly to people who are interested in things like military history. There's a lot of information about his career. Mm -hmm. And in fact, finding out about his personality and his life is is kind of a, a quest of drawing that stuff out. And and luckily, right. uh, Josh Singer really did that for us in the screenplay, I feel, that uh, he boiled it down to the character elements for us. Yeah, I mean, there's, like you said, it's like a textbook. There's just like a lot of information of his career, like you said. But through that, we kind of do get a picture of, of who Neil was. And he's a very low-key person. And in the film, he was a very low-key character where he almost seems like passive. And that could be a challenge for a screenwriter to write a very passive character. He knew who he was. He he always tried to do the right thing. He was very professional. He cared a lot about his work and didn't make a lot of fuzz. You know, I think a film about buzz would be the polar opposite of that. It would be a very dramatic film. It would be a lot of emotional scenes but everything about Neil is very understated and is very sort of right below the surface I mean obviously he does go through some struggles and there is I think specifically what happens with his daughter is obviously a key point in the film and in the book the key events that affect Neil Armstrong do happen within the first few pages of the screenplay mm-hmm. uh, happen within the first few minutes of the film yep I think it's fair to say that that is where the interesting dynamic in this character comes from. Is it's, it's very similar to something we talked about with Manchester by the Sea as well. It's a character whose want, when, when we look at the, the elements of build-up character, however people like to define them, usually wants and needs come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And this is a character whose want is completely impossible and really has nothing to do with going to the moon. Mm. It, as a family man, uh, there's a tragedy that has affected him so deeply that he'll never be able to fully recover from that. For me, it's a film 
kind of in the same category of silence. I think it was mm. heavily overlooked. I think it was overlooked for political reasons on on both sides of the American political spectrum, and it it does show how how far America's come in the last fifty years since the moon landing that that this is actually an episode they'd prefer to forget. Um, but I yeah honestly I I I thought Neil Armstrong. The more I read about him, the more I admired him. Oh, same, same for me. I I didn't really know too much about him, and he's kind of been immortalized as a sort of great American hero. And you know, it's just it's just not that film. And and I, and I have so much respect for Damien Chazelle for being truthful to that. He wasn't trying to make a film about the first moon landing and making it this sort of sensational and like America's great conquest. He was he actually respected Neil. And he respected who he was as a person, and the film and the script reflects that. And I think that that's why I love it so much. The nationalistic image of Neil Armstrong is of no interest to me. It was actually when I discovered who the man behind the iconic images actually was. That mm-hmm. was when I started to admire and respect him. I don't think it necessarily came from him as a symbol at all it it mm. came from actually learning about his background learning about the struggles he dealt with and and then just being very interested and just absorbed by the story which i think like i said um it did require a good screenwriter like josh singer to to turn that source material into something engaging totally number 15 is eternal sunshine of the spotless mind written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Michelle Gondry. And it is a film that is innovative in its story and its characters and in its originality. I think it's one of the most original stories I've ever read and seen. Um, So iconic now that we almost act like it's always been around. But it wasn't because I remember yeah, when I saw it, was, it. It was very groundbreaking. Yeah, when I remember when I first saw it, I was in high school, and none of my other friends wanted to see it with me because they just thought it didn't look like it looked weird. I mean, it just felt like such a. It's a love story, essentially. If you want to break it down to its core, it's a love story. But the way that love story is told through memory, through this very sort of science fiction setting but still grounded in, in, in reality. You know, you have this machine that can erase people's memories of a person and it looks like a dental clinic. It's, it's, it's science fiction, but in a very normal setting. Which is kind of how scientific revolutions do come to us when you think about it. Mm. It is something that becomes very mundane and part of the right, fabric after, of the world once it becomes accepted and it's you know just part of life yeah, yeah. i mean you can do indoor skydiving nowadays but it's just a building that you go to that I says know. indoor skydiving on the side so, uh, he kind of treated it like right. that didn't he that it's just like yeah you go to this um memory loss clinic essentially yeah you know i think what i love about the script was just how original it is in having the story of the character erasing the memory of someone else and we're getting to explore that relationship through that process of these memories being erased by the last time they saw each other and going backwards to the first time they met. And in this case, it's Josh and Clementine. Yeah, it's it's a really profound story and the idea of erasing pain 
of avoiding pain. Mm -hmm. It makes a very strong comment on a world where people do retreat, where they do refuse to face problems and they retreat from them and they hide in their... And I'm not saying this in in any kind of condescending way because I completely understand the struggles that everyone goes through, but just in the sense that the idea of numbing the pain isn't going to save you from it. Ultimately, I think that is kind of one of the the messages at the heart of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is that mm. as as the memory loss is affecting characters, they start to grasp and realize that they're losing the most precious things as well as the most painful things. And also about fate and mm-hmm. how, yeah. you know, when two people are meant to be together or meet and doesn't matter how many paths you try to i mean it's just interesting just to the concepts that it sort of explores but it's all in the background and at the center is the relationship between joel barish and clementine krasinski and brilliantly played by jim carrey and kate winslet i mean i think they really bring the story to life uh, just as much as michelle gondry also brought the story to life i think michelle gondry and charlie kaufman were an extremely perfect match i would think Almost everyone who listens to our podcast has seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But I, if you haven't seen it, I would actually love to know that. I'd love you to write in and say, I'm one of the people who hasn't seen this. Because yeah. I feel like it's almost a rite of passage for film lovers nowadays. I know, I think it is. And I mean, not to sound like a hipster, but I was there from day one. I was just like, I <laughs> yeah, loved you do it. Sound I like know. A yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, it's one of my favorite films, honestly. Like whenever someone asks me, like, "What's your favorite film?" It, it's one of the ones that come to mind because I don't know. It's just it's, it transcends a film for me. It's just it, it's comfort. It's a it's a place a a setting that I, I really enjoy, and it's because it has so much detail in there that you can watch it so many times and you still pick up little things that you didn't see before. I mean, it's just it's just a masterpiece in my opinion. Great. Uh, our 16th episode was Toy Story 3. We did want to look at, at this film in particular and we also didn't need to go back to Toy Story and Toy Story 2 because they were made pre the year 2000. So... Mm-hmm. But what was really interesting about Toy Story 3 is that it was kind of an epilogue to a series that was started when we were children. Mm. And so it was actually designed for our generation. It was designed for for those of us who had grown up with Toy Story and then outgrown it, had outgrown those films. It was a homage to that generation and it's it's set when Andy is turning 18 and he's about to go to college and he's deciding what to do with his toys, which everyone who's familiar with the Toy Story franchise knows have their own lives when humans are not around. This actually ties back very strongly into Steve Jobs. If you read the Steve Jobs biography and you read about his early involvement with Pixar, one of his central concepts at Apple as well was objects are designed to be interacted with by people Hmm. that was his design mentality he designed the first macintosh to look like it had a face Mm -hmm. that's something aaron sorkin included in the first act of the steve Jobs script as well Mm -hmm. is is that concept of it's it's meant to be friendly it's meant to be interacted with 
Right. And that idea was carried over into Pixar, that toys were meant to be interacted with, that there were some inherent characteristics within them that were mm. meant to be interacted with. But the, the screenplay itself, which again, similar to Coco, is, is more like a cleaned up version of something that had been developed long before right. in visual format by multiple storytellers and acted out and storyboarded, turned into a, a short film to convince, no, turned into an actual basic version of the film to convince the voice cast to come back on board mm -hmm. and then we get a screenplay although there was a treatment and there were there was writing involved as well but it, it was interesting to look at that primarily because it focuses on that that sense of growing up and letting go and again there's there's a question of memories there but it's really about andy having to make a decision about what he's going to do with these toys where his life is going, but what he wants to carry through from his childhood into his into his adult life. Yeah, I think just from when you take out the element of the talking toys and you take out the cartoons, you take out this, when you strip it down to its basics, I think it's one of the best st stories that we've reviewed in this past year just because of the, the arc that all these characters go through. And there's there's a couple of them that are very important. You have Woody, Buzz, you have Andy, who, you know, who, who's not in the film as much, but has a very central presence throughout the film. And the themes that are so sophisticated in a way too, especially for a kid's film, I think, you know, this, like you said, the script is the result of all that planning. So I don't think it's a, uh, necessarily like the best script because but in terms of storytelling i guess that's what i'm trying to say the journey that we go as an audience with these characters through humor through every sort of like you know character development and even the element of surprise with some of the characters that you think are one way that turn out to be another and and sort of the 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 play on genre of the great escape and i mean there's just a whole bunch of things going on and it just it's it flows so flawlessly really i mean it's a i think close to what i would call a very perfect form of storytelling just from a from any sort of medium i think and and you're right it plays on our nostalgia quite well Number 17 is Moneyball, and it was written by Steven Zalian and Aaron Sorkin, although Aaron Sorkin, I think, kind of... Um, He's like a script doctor. He, yeah, he reworked the script a lot, and he kind of made it into a, you know Aaron Sorkin film. <laughs> uh, so we had your, your good friend, Aiden Jackson Evans, who is a sports writer, and you know we, we were lucky enough that he was in town and he was able to bring all his baseball wisdom because he, you know, this is something that he actually uh, does for a living. Like he actually studies, you know, stats and baseball. And he brought that sort of like passion of baseball to our conversation because I don't have that passion for baseball. Nonetheless, I don't think you need to have that in order to appreciate the story because it's it's more about the story of this one man who is trying to revolutionize. And, it, and it's an underdog story as well. It was very interesting to hear his perspective because he was able to tell us what was done right and what also wasn't as accurate given all his you know knowledge so it was very insightful for for, for me personally to hear sort of like how intricate these uh, stats are and how 
I got an understanding too from what makes baseball so appealing. You know, I think one of the things that I I remember thinking that really resonated was when he said that, you know, you're following a story. Every season is a story. You have your characters, you have your your heroes, and you see their journey throughout all these different games and. I got it in that second. I was just like, okay, I get it. I can see how if you invest your time and you decide to follow and be involved and how it could be a very rewarding experience, a very immersive experience, because when you're watching then with all the knowledge that you have over these players, then the stakes are high mm-hmm. and there's more of a, uh, an emotional attachment to the outcome of a game. So yeah, narrative yeah. underlies so many things. And as writers, I think it's very important for us to be able to recognize where narratives are underlying different aspects of the world. And when we look back at these 20 screenplays we've already done on the 21st rewrite, we can see all these different places, different worlds that they can transport us to. But also things like the narrative behind the moon landing, the narrative behind Mm -hmm. something like Moneyball, the way that these are contested as well. And people try to define what the narrative needs to be it's it's a very important thing i think for us to to consider that there there usually is a story in almost everything right so even moneyball itself the book which we looked at uh, by michael lewis was a way of turning something that was essentially just some facts into a narrative in itself, having a good writer like Michael Lewis, also known for The Big Short, he has a way of explaining these these concepts to a reader in, in the form that most best-selling authors can do. He simplifies it, but he also turns it into a story. Mm. And I think it's the fact that he turns it into a story that really brings it alive for us. Yeah. Uh, episode 18 was Watchmen, which we did in honor of San Diego Comic Con uh, across the street from us. Uh, mm, literally. <laughs> yeah, so we had we had everyone downtown in San Diego dressed up, and there's various um, advertisements and stalls and mm. interactive elements and everything taking over the city. And we wanted to do something that would fit in with both that and also the identity of the 21st rewrite. So Mm. we settled on Watchmen based on the phenomenal graphic novel by Alan Moore, which I think now we've covered a lot of great things. We've covered books, graphic novels, musicals, you name it, you know, and we've only done 20, but we've tried to add a lot of variety in but i think looking at a graphic novel was very important because there is a misconception out there that a graphic novel already is a screenplay which is just not true it's not a storyboard for a film it is a different medium there are things that are happening in graphic novels that cannot be rendered in any other format and i think Mm. that's something we looked into very closely with Watchmen. yeah and honestly i think one of the greatest gifts for me is personally was just reading that graphic novel i've known of it i've seen this film before years ago and i was just so uh surprised at the profound themes that it explores and dark themes that it explores so it's a comic book movie but and it's the only one we have i think so far but it's it's a very grown-up comic book superhero movie i mean this is sort of what would happen if actually superheroes did exist in this world and what the repercussions of that would be. 
in terms of just, you know, human relationships and just everything from the economy to philosophy. And it does it all in a very fun way. I think, you know, the, the story is very intriguing and it plays out like a film noir at the beginning. I, I, and I love the adaptation of it. I think what David Hayter and Alex Say did was phenomenal in adapting this into. And I think we, there's three versions out there that we talked about. And I think the director's cut is probably the one I would watch. Yeah, I remember being very disappointed. Uh, I was a big fan of the graphic novel before the film came out. Mm -hmm. I remember being disappointed by the film. It was the only time I ever saw it as the theatrical cut. Mm -hmm. And my opinions had changed with the director's cut. So I think some stuff, well, the ultimate cut is what I watched. But I do think there's something to to that, to the idea of revisiting that story. Mm -hmm. If you weren't convinced by the theatrical cut 10 years ago when it came out, it might be worth revisiting it. However, I think there is a, an issue with Watchmen in particular that the graphic novel had such loyalty from readers that it made it very hard for the filmmakers to make any changes. Mm. And it's, as I said, it's, it's actually one of the key points of adaptation is you can't just film it frame by frame from the graphic novel. Mm -hmm. It would have been six hours long if that had happened. So, um, yeah, but they were able to yeah. do everything. And the ultimate cut is three and a half hours long. So yeah. it's already long. <laughs> right. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't think they took out anything substantial and they did change the ending a little bit. Uh, but in my opinion, I think it was, it was good for, for film. I don't think it would have worked. What happened in the graphic novel wouldn't have worked in film form. So I think it was very, very smart from the screenwriters to change it, to do the changes that they did. So again, it was, a, it was a great script. And also, uh, even though it's not related to script, I thought it was just beautifully shot. Just like everything was just it felt like a painting, a lot of it, just the visuals and, um, yeah, really, really great script. And our next Alex Garland film was, uh, Never Let Me Go, number 19. And it's based on the book written by Kazuo Ishiguro in what I felt was such a, such a beautiful book. And I think that that was probably what I kept repeating throughout that podcast was how much I loved the book. Yeah. I think, uh, recommendation here is to not treat this as a film and really to our recommendation is to go and read the yes the please book. um if you do choose to read the screenplay or watch the film that should be complementary to mm -hmm. an enjoyment of the story it it's a slow book and we we discussed this in our episode as well mm -hmm. uh that it does take time to get into that book but it's yeah. very, very rewarding by the end. Definitely. And I think because also what we discussed was that it's almost like an unfilmable book just in terms because of its execution. It's, it's, it's a, what the filmmakers did was, was great, but I think, you know, it was just asking for too much to really capture that essence. And I think they did a really good job. But nonetheless, I think if you really want to feel this story, in all its nuances and, and and sort of profoundness and sophistication, I think you've got to read the book first. I think it's um, 
what I was talking about a lot too was just some of the shots and how some somehow visually it was sort of a missed opportunity to actually get deeper with the characters or more intimate. And I think the actors all did a great job too. I will say that. I think they were able to, because they had a wealth of information. I mean, you really seen the x-ray of their souls. So as an actor, I can imagine how exciting that is. I mean, you have everything you need in this book. You can't really get that much deeper than seeing all these moments play out in the book and then perform it. Um, so that's why I found it disappointing that we didn't get any close-ups. It was all mostly wide shots, which I'm still baffled by. But nonetheless, I think they did the best to um, bring that particular story to life. And um, one thing I mentioned earlier that I thought uh, Silence had been our best episode, uh, Never Let Me Go was another of my absolute favorites of our recordings. I think we really we really got deep into the themes. We really mm -hmm. got deep into the effect that the work had had on us. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite telling that uh, both Silence and let, Never Let Me Go were based on very powerful works of fiction. Mm -hmm. um, however, other favorite episodes of mine have included Ex Machina and Eternal Sunshine as well. So I'm not saying it necessarily has to be based on on a great book, but I'm just saying when we do talk about great books, we mm. get great conversations. Yeah, because the story is there and it has such a profound experience in our uh, emotional journey and reading it. And so, yeah, I, I will never forget that, that book. And the most recent episode we've recorded, number 20, was Long Shot, which was a great one for us to explore because it was based on a draft uh, screenplay that was called Flasky, really, well, mm. that were, was in the blacklist in 2011, mm. written by Dan Sterling and turned into a feature film released in 2019 this year, mm. which was written by Dan Sterling and Liz Hanna. And I think we had a lot of fun. It was a comedy. We were laughing about all of the jokes i think it was um, our first sort of like proper comedy yeah i i don't know if we can include sideways necessarily in that so right yeah it's it was a full-on comedy but we had a lot to discuss because we were comparing these two completely different versions and also reconsidering just how much has changed in these last eight years in mm. terms of the political and cultural and therefore comedic climate that this needed to be rewritten and one of my biggest takeaways from, from that episode too, or from that whole journey of reading both scripts, it's just how much I like both. You know, I really don't think I have a preference. I think the original script was just as good as the the updated version of it. I think obviously the updated version plays, caters more to where we are now in our political climate. But I think if that film would have been released when it was written, it would have been the same case. I think it, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I honestly think that there's another good film in there, which is the original scripts. I like both, which is really rare. Usually I prefer one over the other. So we're all caught up. Um, I'm probably going to edit this down so people won't be asleep by now. And <laughs> I think it's time for us to have a quick talk about uh, our favorites. There's too many awards in the film world. But right. I think the 21st rewrite needs to be giving out awards. So <laughs> we're just going to pick our 
And we are an in-depth screenwriting podcast. I think we are in a better position than the Academy to be deciding on on, <laughs> on the best uh, screenplays. Mm. So I think one thing I'd love to start with, just before we talk about the best of, of each category, mm-hmm. the Missed Opportunity Award. So out of these 20 films, the, the concept behind this is, I think we can be loose with this, but either that the book had so much promise and that did not translate into the screenplay or that the screenplay itself had a lot of promise that didn't translate into the film. Um, yes. I think my nomination for this would actually be Never Let Me Go. Same. Which I, I, I think it's quite clear cut here. <laughs> I don't even have to think about it. I already know. Yeah. Because Never Let Me Go, the book promises you the world. I'm, I mean... Kazuo Ishiguro was was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature last last year. He is a phenomenal author, and I think Alex Garland did a valiant attempt at at trying to adapt this for the screen. Mm-hmm. The film failed to deliver. The screenplay itself failed to deliver in in part. I'm comfortable in saying that because I admire Ex Machina so much as well. This is not. Um, piling on criticism onto Alex Garland as as a writer. I just think this particular project yeah. could have been better. Yeah, and, and I think it's... Um, I mean, no one sets out to make a bad film, and I don't think it was a bad film. I think it just... It just... It feels like it was because of the book, you know, because you, you see the potential. You see what... And I, and I don't have the answers. Well, I have some ideas. We'll start with like more close-ups, but you know, other than that, I don't know how we could have, you know, like we talked in the podcast, they took out things and changed things that were questionable and we didn't really understand the motivation behind certain changes. Um, the The film felt kind of stale in its sort of visual aesthetic, but I will say that the performances were really great. I think mm-hmm. the, the, it's still a good film. Yeah. But there's a difference between good and great. Yeah. And, and I felt like I, I really did feel like I was seeing those characters come to life through those actors. So I will say that. But yes, that that to me is the missed opportunity for sure. Okay. So that's a clear cut award. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were saying we were going to disagree more. Um, Maybe the next one. The next award will be for best writing style. Now, for this one, there's some, some nominees in, in the sense that there's some some writers we're more familiar with who have mm-hmm. reputations. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just interesting to compare these writers' styles and decide which one. I think this is a very um, personal choice in this. Yes. Yes, so completely cognizant that this is entirely an individual choice mm-hmm. um, and no one should be judged on just our opinions. But... I'm going to put up Aaron Sorkin. So we had we had the chance to read Steve Jobs and Moneyball for this for Aaron Sorkin, Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, Alex Garland, Ex Machina and Never Let Me Go, Damien Chazelle for Whiplash and La La Land, Kenneth Lonergan, Manchester by the Sea, and Charlie Kaufman for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Ooh, that's a tough one. They're all so different from each other. But which style resonated most with you in terms of just the act of reading off the page as opposed to anything else? I would say 
Aaron Sorkin for me, just because uh, it's just so immersive in terms of how it jumps off the page. Like, you know, I, I could imagine him just, I don't know, doing a line of coke and just going at it. Like, it's just so rapid and, you know, it just really holds your attention. And he's really smart. I mean, the way he breaks down character, the way he presents character, um, it, it's just a very immersive experience every time I, I, I read an Aaron Sorkin script. So I would just say Aaron Sorkin um, because that's the first person that came to mind. Okay, I'm going to disagree with you slightly on Good. this one. I think just in, to give some notable mentions, Alfonso Cuaron's style did draw me in. It was very enjoyable to read. Mm -hmm. But I, I get the feeling that it's only possible when you know you're going to direct that film. It was definitely something for him mm. uh, personally. Uh, Alex Garland, I admire him enormously as a writer after reading Ex Machina. Um, and Damien Chazelle, I think, did a phenomenal job with Whiplash in making an engaging 120 pages with two primary characters. Mm -hmm. However, I think in terms of style, I'd go with Kenneth Lonergan for Manchester by the Sea. I think there was just something running through that, that screenplay mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. just... It felt like a presence, didn't it? Like It yeah. felt like there was this background something... I kind of get what you're saying. It it was something that just felt in that funny way that fiction sometimes can. It felt real and authentic, despite mm -hmm. being about fictional characters and events. Yeah. And there was just something about, I think, what I learned from his style in terms of writing. How certain choices of dialogue could be used to tell you so much about a character. Mm. How much little actions could be used. It's interesting because, like I said, there's no hero's journey in that screenplay. So the right. fact that I found it so engaging suggests there's something about the writing style that, mm. that kept it going. Maybe I'll change my mind by tomorrow, but we're saying this on the record now. So No, I mean, it's a, I disagree, but it's a good choice. So we'll, uh, we'll split the award between Kenneth Lonergan and Aaron Sorkin. Yes, two good choices. Yes, I did have uh, an interesting one just on best opening page, mm. which I'd already kind of picked. So the opening page is Steve Jobs. It's the Macintosh launch, 1984, and Andy Hertzfeld can't get the Mac to work. Mm. There was something really engaging about that uh, right from the very start. Um, Coco, the, the screenplay actually has a different... Uh, opening page to the film mm. which we remember is told entirely in the uh the papel picado style mm -hmm. the screenplay describes an altar the copal the um the petals leading up to the altar and then the papel picado and then miguel starts telling the story of his family mm. and there's just this sense of just transporting you immediately into this oaxacan village uh, on the day of the eve of Day of the Dead, mm. silence set in 1633, and then these these priests emerge from the mist, and then we discover that they're about to be tortured mm. with boiling hot water by these samurais. There's something about that opening page that really just stuck mm. in my mind, and and the film itself brought that to life. Ruin, the captain 
is that the entire first page of Ruin is just action, action, action. It's just blocks of text, uh, which is mm. something that usually writers are told not to do. But it's this very tense, completely visual and captivating page. The captain is setting up his sniper rifle to take out these two, these two Nazis in this blown out, destroyed 1945 Germany. Mm-hmm. And finally, La La Land, a horrific traffic jam on the 101. Then everyone jumps out of their cars singing and dancing. Mm. And finally, the title card appears on the screen saying, Winter. Mm. So all of those are great opening pages. I think ultimately I would pick Steve Jobs as mm. the most engaging hooking you right from the start is just Andy Hertzfeld and uh, Steve Jobs shouting at each other because the yeah. the machine they're about to demo won't work, which is more or less based on real events, let's say. Um, right. It didn't happen in such a dramatic setting, but oh, who knows? I think that does. I think that shows exactly why you picked. Uh, Sorkin as right. uh, as the best in style as well. I think it was that that ability to transform facts into these these scenes. Yeah, that's a good pick. And uh, I'm gonna go with something you didn't mention, which is uh, actually for me it, it's Watchmen. I think the first you know the first action in that story was so in- intriguing, like. You have a setting where superheroes are now illegal and one of them is dead. To me, that's like, whoa. It just really set up that story. And it set up a lot of things in just a very simple sort of uh, scene in terms of like action. So you have a murder. Yeah. But the, so the opening page is the comedian is in his apartment, mm-hmm. aged, retired. He's having a cup of tea and he's yes. he's going to watch the news on the television. Right. And someone bursts in. Yeah. And we don't know who this is. And he is killed, thrown out the window. And one of his friends, Rorschach, is now uh, about to investigate what happened. And I think what was so interesting for that or intriguing for me was just like the idea of superheroes being outlawed and why a outlawed superhero would be dead. I'm a sucker for film noirs. I think, you know, setting up a murder mystery to me is always like, oh, who did it? It just, it's very intriguing for me. So I would pick that one. Very good. Okay. So let's get to the big awards now, which would be, should we start with Adapted? Yes. We actually have quite an even split here. So we'd have Steve Jobs, Slumdog Millionaire, Silence, Lost City of Zed, Sideways, First Man, Toy Story 3, Moneyball, Watchmen, and Never Let Me Go. And hmm. you said you thought about your choices before you got here, right? You mean narrowing it down to a few or just, just saying to which pick one? Which one you were going for? Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely, I'm, okay, so I'm kind of split between two. So I am torn between picking either Silence or Steve Jobs. And the reason why I like each one is the opposite for each other. So I love Silence because of how true it was to its source material. I love how. It was just able to miraculously literally bring that story to life, almost like, you know, story beat by story beat, scene by scene. And I thought it was just, you know, beautifully crafted. But the reason why I love Steve Jobs is the opposite reason of that. It's because how I was able to take its source material and just completely do it a completely different way and and, and play with it and, and make it something unique and 
I guess I would say Steve Jobs because of how original it was in its approach to telling the story of, of this man and, uh, and just pretty much creating a portrait. You know, it's not, it's not a, a, a realistic take on it. Obviously, none of that really happened the way it did. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a portrait. It's a painting. It's a, it's a interpretation of this man's life, but also using all those real life ingredients into its thing. And I thought that was just masterfully done. Well, it's interesting you said both of those. Honestly, I'd, I was equally torn between them. I'd say notably, I would include First Man and Lost City of Zed as kind of close-ish contenders, but mm -hmm. really Silence and Steve Jobs are still oh, oh, wow. storming ahead of them. When are you going to disagree? <laughs> um, but however, I think Silence deserves to be the best adaptation because I think it, as an adaptation, it was most capable of conveying the full spirit of the work it was based on mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think it just complements a book. I think it created a masterpiece of a film based on a masterpiece of a book mm. and they just they work together and you could i honestly feel you could dip in and out of them you could start reading the book and watch the film and then go back to the book yeah and, and it would be seamless yeah and i think it would raise the same kind of questions each time mm -hmm. so even though steve jobs is a phenomenal a phenomenal screenplay Mm -hmm. I would go with silence for the adaptation part of it, just based on the meaning of the word adaptation. And also I think it, it it's a very different type of adaptation too because uh, Steve Jobs is a biography. So it's like a 600 page of information. So it's not like a narrative storyline, you know what I mean? So it's just, it, it, it is a very different type of take on, on that. So I think it, it afforded its liberties in a way. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, I'm not yeah. saying that. I'm not saying you could in any way adapt the book without some sort of forty-part TV show. Right. Um, but what I'm saying is just in terms of, yeah, my perception yeah. of what adaptation at its finest right. would mean is, unfortunately, taking twenty-something years to write it, <laughs> which is what happened with Silence. You know, uh, some things, good things, take their time. Yeah. So what, what will we decide then? Are we going to split the award? Well, I guess. I, I yeah. would say I would say split, yes. Okay, so we've got a split award for best adapted and for original. Do you want to read the list? So for original screenplay, we have Long Shot, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, La La Land, Whiplash, Ex Machina, Ruin, Manchester by the Sea, Coco, and Roma. It's almost too hard to decide here. I know. Shall I go first on this one? Yes, why don't you go first? There are a lot of screenplays here that I have a very strong connection with and fond memories of, of reading them, of doing the episodes, breaking them down. I think as a result of doing that, despite any personal attachments I might have to La La Land, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and Roma for especially. I genuinely think Ex Machina is the best example of an original screenplay in the way it's actually built structurally. 
I don't think there's much you can do with that screenplay in terms of trying to take out scenes without mm -hmm. the whole thing falling apart. It, it's like this very beautifully assembled house of cards. And I think it's a perfect example for anyone who is uh, learning about writing screenplays in, in how to do it. The economy with which Alex Garland wrote as well mm. in, in that screenplay, plus the variety of ideas he introduced into it, even though I would say Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind introduces a lot of great ideas and concepts within a similar kind of space. I honestly think Ex Machina is the best, just as a screenplay. Not the best film, but as a just as a document in, in pen and paper. Gotcha. Having you draw that distinction of best script as opposed to best film, uh, I'm still a little torn. So I think the best film is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But I don't necessarily think... I mean, the script was great. I think the, the innovation, the storytelling, everything. Storytelling at its best, I think, is there. But I think as a document, like you kind of put it that way. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of torn between Manchester by the Sea and, and Ruin. I think when I read Ruin, it felt like the same thing you explained. You can't take a scene out and it's all there. It's a... It, it's just perfectly executed, structured in its entirety in the script. But then in Manchester by the Sea, the same thing. I think it's it's impeccable in its design and its structure and, and everything else. We're talking about the top level here. Yeah. We, we are, we're always picking screenplays that actually shout out to us. Please read us. <laughs> please analyze us. Please talk about us on the podcast. We're not going to read something right we're not going to be able to do this every two weeks if we're not interested in what's at the heart of it so we're talking about a very high level of mm. very high quality so every every choice will be subjective i would say ruin just because it, it challenged me as a reader in terms of the ideas that were presented the the characters and their struggles what they were presented and how the story unfolded at the very end if you have a great ending like that, it's a ride worth investing in. It speaks to it because I haven't seen the film. You know what I mean? So like this was a full on story in my head because that's the only place where it exists. There's no visuals to it. And it's it it speaks a lot to the craft of, mm. of great writing. It's interesting you say that as well because Ex Machina was another of the ones that I specifically... I'd heard good things, but I read the screenplay first before seeing the film. Mm. So I had that experience with Interesting. it. Interesting. Uh, Steve Jobs, I also had that experience, which mm. we could say, unfortunately, you didn't have, but you also had an experience I didn't have of seeing it in the theater when it, when it came out. So mm. there's all these different ways of experiencing these stories. I do think that there is something very miraculous that happens when you read a screenplay that you haven't seen the film of and then you go and see it and it's almost you're you're living this production yes in fast motion you You've go seen, from yeah. reading it to seeing the film within a few days mm -hmm. uh, obviously when in reality it's more like ruin that you you just have this you've read the screenplay but you don't know how the film's going to turn out for 
Yeah. Possibly it, years now. I mean, it, it should be coming out next year, but. Right. Yeah. I and mean, it's almost like, a, like, it's interesting you say that about, you know, there is something very informative and educational, especially for aspiring screenwriters that you read a script and then you watch the film. You're essentially watching the before and after. This is a, it's invaluable, that whole process. Yeah. So I would pick Ruin. Okay. So we will, I'll summarize all the awards and put that up on our, our social cool. media. I'm, I'm sure the Fearpo brothers will be <laughs> delighted to find out that this podcast they've never heard of has actually <laughs> selected their screenplay above um, such contenders as uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And but Roma, I, will, so. I know, but I will go on record on saying that Eternal Sunshine is my favorite film. Anyways, yeah. Yes, until Rowan comes out potentially. So it's been great to recap um, yes. what has actually been a year's worth of work. Mm -hmm. Hasn't been online for a year yet, but on our 21st episode, we're actually recording on the 21st of August just for, That's interesting. for extra 21s. Right. So, yeah, this has been a great start to to the podcast. And Yeah. Well, I will, I will want to say that, you know, I think doing this whole process of reading scripts and because I didn't really do this too much before I started doing this whole journey with you. I think uh, I read a few scripts, obviously, but reading them with the consistency that we're doing it and actually watching the films and actually doing the research into the, the, the books they're based on and, and the whole production side of it has given me the confidence to write. I I feel like I have more of a knowledge of when it's not working. When before, it would be this sort of like, is it working? Is it not working? Now it becomes more intuitive, more instinctual. Now when I'm writing, it's like, okay, I can feel this is not working and I know what I need to do when I you know, go read the dialogue again and see what needs to be fixed. So I think subconsciously what I'm doing is just really sharpening those tools as a writer and to just act more on instinct as opposed to overthinking certain things. So it's just been just a great experience in terms of just like learning what makes a good script. I think that really has been invaluable for me personally. I think one of the most, uh, rewarding moments of the the last year was um when ben came on the show mm -hmm. and after after we we spoke with him and recorded yeah. a really great episode he he wrote to us and said thank you for letting me be a part of your remarkable podcast mm. and that was one of the points where it dawned on me that we were actually doing something quite special because there are a lot of film podcasts out there but I think what we're offering is something very different, which is this very thoughtful, on the point, all the time, analysis of, of screenplays. But we don't allow that to make it dry. We, we don't just look at the words on the page. We talk about what the words mean to us. The implications of the words. Exactly. And yeah. um, I was trying to describe it to someone, a potential guest at one point, and I was saying, well, we almost end up treating these screenplays like literature at times, mm. which is it's a funny concept because we always understand that a screenplay is just a blueprint for a movie and there's a lot of disagreement in, in filmmaking communities about how important the words in a screenplay actually are. But when, when you do get to this level and you read things like 
uh, Ruin, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Silence, Ex Machina, Steve Jobs, they actually have an effect on you in a way that the film itself cannot do. And that's mm. very interesting. There's something about it, and I think Quentin Tarantino is one of those people who really identified that mm. and now includes so much in his written screenplays for, for readers. And it's a, a craft because you are making the foundation of a building. You're the blueprint, and if it's on shaky ground, the building will tumble. It's a, you know, I've been in the film industry for a couple of years, and I can see the work that goes into it, just the amount of hours, energy, logistics, getting people, actors together. Just, it's such a, I feel like every film is a miracle just in terms of like how everyone just comes together, money spent. So I think audiences are maybe not aware to the level of work that gets put into it. To use a metaphor from one of the screenplays, well, the graphic novel we looked at, Dr. Manhattan, mm. it takes him a long time to realize um, that every human being is a miracle. Mm. He forgets mm. in, in, over time because of this saturation of television. Right. There's supposedly something now between the range of 300 and 500 scripted TV shows a year coming That's, out of the United right. States, plus all of the feature films, mm. plus the fact that most of the feature films are going into a strong split between blockbuster entertainment and independent cinema. Mm. It's so easy to forget how much work goes into everything. And just even the writing of a screenplay, people might think screenplays are expensive documents, but when you consider how many hours someone has to put in to one and then feed themselves <laughs> for mm. years on end without actually getting anything made, it's a total time investment, you know, and I think keep in mind that all that hard work, all those logistics, it it's for to bring this story that you wrote to life. And if that's not good, then, you know, what is it all for? So it's the most important thing because it's literally that foundation. So I, I think it's an invaluable craft in itself because it sets the tone for the production um, One thing that always stood out to me, and I read this when I was about 17, I think I was reading the, the Guerrilla Filmmaker's Handbook. It, is that around in the United States or is that a British thing? I think it's written by British. I've, I mean, authors. I know that I know what it means, but I, I haven't heard of that book specifically. Yeah, so it was called the Guerrilla Filmmaker's Handbook. It was essentially a, a guide to making your own film. Mm-hmm. Without With, money or budget? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, especially at a time when... This was, you know, early 2000s, so internet distribution was new, mm. um, digital cameras were new, but it was offering this new opportunity to people. Suddenly they could afford to make films. There was a diagram in that book that essentially showed this rule of tens. And the rule of ten was essentially, of every ten ideas, ten will get made into a first draft, say, and then it was, of every ten first drafts, one will get finished. And of every 10 finished screenplays, one will get produced. And of every 10 produced screen, uh, screenplays, one will be a successful film. And it, it's like this mm. pyramid of you've got a one in 10 chance of progressing to the next step. Right. So all, when you go all the way back, there's thousands of ideas 
but how many films that are successful, like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, are there? It's mm. it compared to that funnel of all these great ideas that then get turned into drafts, screenplays. But ultimately, the most important thing is doing your best and doing just your, believing in it. Yeah, doing your best and just you know persistence. You know, it's like it's that saying. You know, uh, water doesn't cut through rock through sheer force, but through persistence. It's it it takes time. And uh, I just heard from Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale. She said this really uh, important piece of wisdom that really resonated with me, which is the trash can's your friend. You know. It's there for you, you know, just keep at it. You're, you are going to have crappy ideas, but you have to keep going. You know, that's what the trash can is there for. It's a, it's this way of just, it'll always be there. So just keep going. Um, yeah. So thank you, Alan, for the last 20 episodes, well, 21 now of the 21st rewrite. Thank you to the listener for accompanying us. And if it's the first episode you're listening to, then I do hope that you decide to pursue more and and start listening to some of the recommendations we've made, especially the ones that we've selected as being noteworthy and the ones we've already mentioned as being our favorites yeah, to record. Yeah, it's been a great journey. And, you know, for the next, you know, 20, our next season, as you will, you know, it's just to challenge ourselves, I think, also as readers to mix it up a little bit and bring some more insightful screenplays for you guys and yeah i can't wait to to keep reading well we might be about to learn a new language to read the screenplay so <laughs> a clue for the next one okay so that's it for the 21st recap 